You're listening to K&J Recaps. Okay, well, welcome back, everyone. This is K&J Recaps. Um, this is our second ever podcast. I'm Jess. I'm Kim. Hi, Kim. Hi, how are you? I'm well. I'm really excited to chat about, we're talking about episode two of Stranger Things tonight, and uh, we did episode one earlier this week. Of course, this is a new Netflix series released kind of mid-July-ish, um, and we are only watching the episode that we're recapping. We have not skipped ahead so that we don't spoil ourselves. Uh, I am so happy to have finally been able to watch episode two. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like forever. It was really not that long, but when you're really used to binge-watching, even just, you know, a week, a week and a half in between, I was like, I can't wait. Yeah, it's clearly a show that's meant to be binge watched, like like almost anything designed today, but especially Netflix, which, you know, just releases entire seasons at one time. They're really built to kind of keep you going. So it is very hard to press stop as it's prompting you on the next one. So let's just keep going through them. So um, this is episode two, also called chapter two, The Weirdo on Maple Street. Uh, I love the chapter title. Yeah, they're really cool, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I did not read ahead, though, to what the um, chapter titles were. I mean, of course, they're all listed on Netflix, but I really tried not to read ahead because I didn't want them to give anything away. I agree. I mean, it's kind of I usually skip over the table of contents in a book, too, for that reason, because I know, obviously, they're very ambiguous and not really spoilery. But even then, it's like, no, I will see each episode name as they um come as we get there yeah yeah for sure so if anyone has not listened to our uh episode one podcast yet uh feel free to go back and get caught up and uh then we will uh proceed episode by episode together so uh yay two down absolutely okay so we're gonna jump in we're gonna go scene by scene and kind of give our thoughts so um we open scene one definitely right where we were at the end of uh, the first episode. So the boys were out ra- randomly wandering the woods at the episode or the end of um, episode one, rather. And they came across Eleven. Um, and at this point, when we open on the second episode, they've brought Eleven home to Mike's basement, which we also saw in season one. And it's, you know, the three of them trying to get answers out of Eleven, who we know um, is not an overly talkative individual. <laughs> we learned that in the first, uh, first episode. Yeah. So, um you know, they're asking her all kinds of questions and then Mike offers her dry clothes. And of course there's this huge commotion when she decides she's going to start changing right there in front of them. And of course the boys all freak out. Uh, I love this whole thing. I, like Dustin continues yeah. to be like the comedic yeah. standout for me when, um, when he's like, what's up with your hair? Do you have cancer? I'm like, Oh, Dustin, that's not like, cool. Yeah, and then he keeps mimicking the the shirt removal all the time. Right. Yeah. Such like you know, like real preteen boy. I imagine, uh, sort of like mocking of a of of a of a girl. Absolutely, <laughs> and just you know, so shocked. I mean, obviously, four boys. You know, before Will's disappearance, who I don't think spent a lot of time with girls, other than maybe Mike's sister. Like, it's not. I think they're still very much in that phase of life where things are very split by 
gender sure. traditionally, and yes. so yeah, I don't think that they. <laughs> it's still like a, it's still a girls have cooties exactly age, age bracket <laughs> for sure. Um, so yeah, Mike gets her the dry clothes, and he says, you know, you can come change in the bathroom, and you know, you immediately notice that she doesn't want to close the door fully um, in the bathroom, and then there's that kind of discussion throughout that you know should we tell a grown up basically, and Mike's mom mm-hmm. would be the natural go to in this case since they're at his house and um yeah I guess just to finish off the scene and we can go back and talk about it but they decide that they'll kind of compromise and she can stay the night in her fort which I thought looked rather conspicuous but anyway a fort in the basement (laughs) and that the next day she'll sneak around and you know pretend she's just arrived and then Mike's mom can help them uh for sure so yeah what did you kind of think of the opening scene in terms of of introducing her into even more civilization than what we saw at Benny's you know, diner where we saw her interacting with a grown up, even with fellow kids, she's extreme. Yeah, but I thought I thought that it was a really great scene to kind of like. Um, I mean, I got the impression that she hadn't really spent much time around kids. I, I don't know if that's an inference that I'm making, um, or if it was intended to read that way. Um, but I thought that it was a great dynamic of showing you know, like what I think was a pretty genuine, genuine reaction to what 11 and 12 year olds might react to in that sort of situation. Um, But then I also felt like Mike in particular was just like really, I don't know, tender and like um, empathetic with 11. And he was just really being patient with her and stuff. And I thought that that relationship really got off to a, to a really nice, sweet start. Yeah. Uh, so I thought it was a really a really nice opening scene. I agree. I mean, we don't really know Dustin and Lucas's home lives. We haven't met their families, but we do know Mike has a much younger sister. Um, mm-hmm. He's certainly been around like a baby in the house. Plus, he has an older sibling. So I agree. It, it was very. Um, he is obviously obviously very caring. Um, and the other thing I thought too is that because you've now had her introduced to kids, and rather than Benny, the adult like you do get those questions like Dustin just being like, do you have cancer or like, are right. you from the nut house? Did you escape? Like, you know, just like, <laughs> exactly. Uh... And I loved, I loved that. Um, so in this scene, it was a very similar sort of um, uh, discussion about her name as she had with Benny. So she shows Mike her tattoo and he, you know, indicates that she is 11. Um, and so Mike gives her the nickname L um short for 11 mm. which i just thought was just really really sweet and um i don't know i think that that is it's those types of sort of gestures that mike makes throughout the episode that i think really kind of starts to break down 11's barriers absolutely um, well and then she uh, says night mike um at the end yeah. where they part and i mean that came as a real shock that she could speak that much I mean she said kind of yeses and noes and a couple of things but she obviously like got Mm -hmm. what his name was and then um this girl who's this actor as you know they leave Mike leaves her in the basement and her she's in her fort and that they close up on her face and she's on the verge of tears like she had the trembling lower lip and kind of Mm -hmm. eyes I mean just phenomenal acting um not quite breaking into tears but you definitely just feel for her um in the situation that she's in so for sure And I, I do, I get the impression too. I mean, she did not speak much throughout this scene. As you mentioned, she, we know that, you know, she isn't, she isn't a talker, (laughs) but I I mean, I get the impression that, I mean, she has language. I mean, she speaks English, but 
hasn't been exposed to a number of words. So we this is something that we continue to see throughout the episode too, when she has more interactions with Mike and his friends, but they introduce her to words and concepts that she hasn't been familiar with before. But I think she has general understanding, like she isn't um, completely oblivious to the conversations that they're having. Um, she just isn't speaking much. Yeah. Um, and, and then there are a number of words that she doesn't seem familiar with. But um, yeah, so when she says night Mike, you know, that's the most we've yeah. heard her speak. I yeah, think. and I think yeah. those words were really interesting. Each word that she kind of um, comes across throughout the episode, and we can talk about it, but I think has a significance in the fact that she doesn't know it, you know, because such kind of right. impactful words. So talk about that but we move from that scene into the opening credits um okay so i have an update on the credits so we talked a lot about this really incredible theme that we loved that was a real 80s throwback um and was really you know synth heavy and so we talked about this in the first uh podcast so it was i was racking my brain trying to think of where i heard something so similar and um so i've landed on tron legacy i think that is it is Tron Legacy, so not actually the 80s Tron, but the remake that was done with Garrett Hedlund and Jeff Bridges, uh, I don't know how many years ago, maybe five or yep. six years ago. Uh, yeah, so um, all of the music for that movie was done by Daft Punk, and so really synth-heavy, and uh, and so I looked up the um, the soundtrack today and found one particular, all of it has a very similar kind of thread in the the type of music that it is but there's one um song in particular on the soundtrack that i really was like that's it that's what i've been trying to figure out uh so i i uh if anyone is uh, is interested in uh, interested in going to look up the tron legacy soundtrack that is what i was referring to when i said it was just on the tip Absolutely. of my tongue okay. and i did um come across a nerdist article this week that talks about the band who has done all the music for the show yeah oh, really? they're called survive um, and there are two members, and it's, it is all, you know, synth. And they existed before um, the show, so they're not put together for the show, but I guess um, tapped into. But there is a great article on Nerdist about, um, yeah, just you can listen to some of their music and their actual songs, which are all in that kind of creepy, synthy, you know, kind of vibe. So, very. And the other thing I noticed about the opening credits that I hadn't noticed last time, I just I hadn't picked it up, is that they do a great job of... Um, They've overlaid like a, as if it's filmed on old video or old film, like a video that's been run through your VCR too many times. There's like, um, I'm not going to describe this well, but blemishes in the tape. So you get these little white spots right. kind of showing up throughout, just in the credits. They don't do it in the rest of the show, but it's super throwback to me of when you had run something through your VCR too many times and, you know, the tape started to wear um, and gives it, I'm sure it's shot digitally, but, you know, gives it that feeling of having been shot on, on physical film that um, was kind of a neat addition to that, to the credits. Uh, Okay. So we're at Joyce's house. Uh, Joyce is not looking good. (laughs) Uh, She's obviously really distraught. Jonathan's trying to encourage her to eat, but um, she is not having an easy time of it. Uh, so Hopper shows up and he has been out searching all night. She is uh, uh, waiting at the door for him to give him an update, give her an update, but uh, nah, no sign of Will has been found. Um, but he's there to investigate the phone call that Joyce received in episode one. So if you recall, that's like the static and breathing and she's sure that it's Will, but then there's this big static charge that um, that uh, shocks her and then the phone goes dead. So the phone, when Hopper looks at it, it's all scorched and burned. 
Uh, he's really skeptical that this was, in fact, Will. But there's this real moment between him and Joyce when Joyce says, mm-hmm. don't you think I know my own son's breathing? Wouldn't you know your own daughter's? And then there's this long pause, like a tense Absolutely. moment. Because, of course, we learned in episode one that Hopper's daughter had died several years ago. Um so a long, awkward pause, uh, and then Hopper leaves to go check on uh, Lonnie, Joyce's ex, ex-husband, uh, or at least father to Will, uh, to see if he has any, any news on Will. So uh, thoughts on this one. I, I, something occurred to me in this scene that as we go through the rest of the episode um, becomes less likely, but even still during this scene, it did occur to me, what if Eleven is Hopper's daughter? <laughs> I never thought of that. Wow. What? She went missing years yeah. ago and they thought she was dead. But then she wasn't. She was taken to a laboratory. But we don't know. Like, we don't know the story there, right? Because all we got was she died. Correct? We didn't get she went missing and died. We got she's dead. Yeah, yeah none exactly. of that. <laughs> no, just, yeah, this is a, this is a tinfoil hat theory is, on my I mean, she's sure. right around that, like, age. She would be friends. It's a really interesting, I mean, yeah, we'll get to that scene later with, you know, that flashback to her. But, like, where are the kids coming so, from? Or where is this kid? I assume there's more because her name is Eleven. Um, where is this right, kid coming from? Exactly. But I do have theories about that as well, which actually directly contradict this theory. (laughs) So I'm really all over the map, which I will talk more about when we get to that flashback scene, because that one was super interesting. for sure. Yeah, no, I thought this scene just really kind of reinforced, obviously, that um, Joyce and um, Hopper know each other, right? That, That she could pull that really emotional moment. I mean, he's doubting her and that's where she goes is, wouldn't you know your daughter? And I think she probably immediately regrets it. I think they're at the point where I'm sure, I mean, he says, oh, must got hit by lightning, the phone. But even he says it looks really strange. You know, he admits that much, but no one wants to admit that there could be anything else, right? Um, And then immediately becomes so emotional that he's out of there before I think they really think further about what the phone could be. Um, and then the other thing would be just that he takes another one of those mysterious pills that he seems to take in very stressful situations. So for sure. So I, I have, um, like, uh, I have like this, this real kind of like respect for Joyce almost. Right. Because I don't know necessarily that everyone in that situation would automatically jump to the conclusion that this static, um, insecty, you know, electric phone call was in fact my son. And she is, you know, so convinced by it. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that it is bizarre and hard to believe. I, right? Yeah. I also, um, think, I mean, I think you really, Joyce is definitely, I mean, whether it's the fact that her son is missing or she's always like this. I mean, there's a lot of like brave Joyce moments throughout this episode too, that we're going to get sure. Absolutely. And, yeah, like in this moment, in this moment, um, it's just the phone calling. And I guess that is sort of maybe a, a little bit easier to believe, particularly if you're a mom who's grasping at straws trying to find, you know, evidence of where your your son is. Um, but yeah, definitely throughout the rest of this episode that I am like really impressed with the conclusions that mm-hmm. she draws, no matter how sort of far fetched, you know, she just kind of goes yep. with it. So some good, 
good choice moments in this Absolutely. episode. So we move then, um, we flash to Mike's house to the quintessential 80s breakfast food of Eggos. I, it was hilarious to see those. <laughs> I feel like the Eggos are not consumed to the same level that they were consumed in the 80s. Um, once yeah. again, we kind of have the full, whole family, that whole family around the table again. And Mike, who, of course, witnessed Steve sneaking into the house the night before, asks Nancy about her studying, quote unquote. There's a bit of an anatomy joke um, in there, kicking back and forth <laughs> underneath the table. Um, an oblivious mom who just was like, what are you guys talking about? Um, yeah. <laughs> and then um, Mike goes down back back downstairs to 11 where she's hiding in her fort. She's got the walkie-talkie, which we now know is uh, called a supercom, <laughs> which she talks yes. about playing with. Um, and I, I don't know if, uh, you know, because I am 100% guilty of reading too much into things sometimes, but, like, I, I really feel like a lot of the things that are shown or or um, said in this show is kind of little nuggets that are going to come back at a later date. So immediately when he said, uh, oh, you found my super calm, I usually only talk to Lo- Lucas because he lives so close that we don't have very much range. Like, so I really see at a later date that somehow, you yeah, know, it could be yeah. through, through Eleven, you know, powers, her electrical powers, yeah. Maybe electrical theme absolutely right and seeing it being yeah. used on the evil scary side right but if she's kind of the other side of that then absolutely that's a really good point I just like uh, yeah I'm interested to see um, the connection between the electricity itself and you know there has to be a connection between the electricity that we've already discussed is a really huge theme but I don't know yet how that connects yeah. with um, with Eleven's telepathy, if it does, or is her telepathy somehow connected to the electricity? Right. Because we didn't we didn't see any flashing of lights or anything like that. When did we? When she um, when she like took out the bad guys in episode one? I no, I guess the only place the first thing she stopped was the electric fan. Um, and so I guess that's where I'm. But you're right. I mean, she took out the guys, and of course she uses kind of a different telepathy not electrical later too so yeah that's a good yeah. good point um so yeah mike is saying let's go ahead with this doorbell ringing plan and she is just absolutely adamant against that and you know mike kind of says well you must are you in trouble or he figures that part out and essentially she's able to communicate that there is bad people um, after her, she kind of insinuates that this is grown ups, basically, which I think, you know, again, them being the same age, it's kind of easier for them to communicate at that level. And then she uses mimics a gun with her fingers pointing it at her head and Mike's head, you know, kind of saying, indicating really the level of danger, I think, that she's involved in at this point. So I thought that was like a that was a I mean, even though it was such such a simple thing, right, to make a gun with your fingers. But I think that that was really impactful to without any words, um, be able to convey like the level of danger. And Mike really got it. Um, He did not question, uh, you know, whether that was an exaggeration of some kind. He was like, oh, yeah, this is okay. No, no grown up. (laughs) Well, and a, a girl of so few communications that I think that directed communication really, you know, sticks. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then she really kind of like hit it home with the understand, yeah. which was mimicking, you know, Mike when he was giving her instructions and whatever from the night Absolutely. before. Uh, yeah. So even though it was just such a small thing, like I felt like that was it hit home there. Absolutely. For sure. OK, so uh, we're, we've cut to what I assume is the laboratory because it's Dr. Brennan who is walking down the hallway. He's with the lady who was posing as a social worker in episode one and some other guy who is probably another big bad. Um, so <clears throat> they're talking about a phone call that they have overheard with their phone call listening <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, men in black. Um, so what they picked up on was the call that Joyce made to Florence, who works at the sheriff's office, advising Florence um, that she had received this crazy phone call and the static and it was Will's breathing, et cetera. Um, so this was actually a little telling for me because I think I leapt to the conclusion in episode one that they were specifically listening to Joyce's phone call. So when we saw this, for, this bank of people all listening to phone calls and taking notes, it, it definitely showed that there was a woman there who was listening to Joyce call Lonnie. So I had assumed at that point that they were specifically interested in Joyce. They were obviously listening to a number of calls, but, um, you know, Joyce is one that they were that they were specifically listening to. And that wasn't the case at all. It seems like essentially they cast yes. a net and they and they caught an interesting phone call in this one. So that phone call that that they were listening to when Joyce called Lonnie they didn't care about it all because, of course, they don't know yet that Will is missing or that there's a connection to their missing creatures. Right. Because um, then at the end, he says he asks about the boy and finds out he's still missing. That that definitely piqued me for me, too, because you're right. It's not that they know absolutely that this creature got Will. It's that, you know, they know it's escaped. They know a boy's missing. You know, there's probably a correlation there. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I guess I, I kind of jumped to the conclusion in episode one that they were already interested in Joyce and her goings on because of the connection between Will and the creature. But of course, they didn't know yeah. about it yet. It was it was this phone call that alerted them right. to that connection. So we move. That's a really short scene. We move then to the search party that is continuing in the woods. You know, they've obviously got a lot of volunteers out and Hopper is there with a couple of his other um, police officers and um, you know Hopper kind of says that Joyce is on the edge of course he's just coming from that meeting with her with the broken phone and some cop one of the cops makes a kind of like you know blase comment about oh well she's been pretty close to the edge for a while now hasn't she and um, you know Hopper rightfully he says you know she's just lost her son let's you know give her a break yeah he says <laughs> He says, uh, keep it classy. And spoiler alert, uh, they do not. They, <laughs> exactly. These, these cops are Exactly. Dicks. Yeah, because then it they go on to reveal, or at least certainly heavily suggest, because I guess they don't confirm it as, you know, haven't these two screwed before? Um, yeah, and then, yes, so, yeah, this one, those two must have screwed before, haven't they? And then there's another comment made later in the episode uh, where jumping ahead, I know where they um, are talking about Will and asking him a question, uh, and Hopper says, "I'll ask him when I see him." Yeah. And uh, one of the cops says, "You can't ask a, a question to yeah. a corpse." And I was like, yeah. "Wow, why? 
why? And so, I mean, like, what are your thoughts on that? That has to be deliberate. That has to have been a, a deliberate intention for these two cops to kind of come across as real I think jerks. you really get, and I am jumping ahead of it here, but if you would do end up finding out that Hopper comes from being a police officer in the big city, I think the way that they talk about that indicates that these two at least have not. I don't think they've left Hawkins their whole lives from, you know, the kind of guess they have. I mean, that ridiculous conversation that they're going to have in a bit about whether you could survive a jump off of what looks like a 150-foot cliff. (laughs) Um, Also, like a quick kudos to you because you totally called that big city cop. Um, Yes. Uh, when uh, yeah, when we were talking last week, you had said it really kind of seems like Hopper is a big city cop who's come back to a small town and nailed that well, for sure. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, you're seeing what it's like if you don't go and, you know, A, get out of a very small town and B, you know, again, they reference the lack of crime in this place. They even give you the years as to when anything bad really has been happening. And I mean, these guys really, I think, do very little, you know, probably very petty crime and that's it. And it's like, like when we were talking last week about we're so glad that Hopper is not this kind of cliche right. country bumpkin cop. <laughs> and, you know, like, I'm sure there's lots of small town cops out there who uh, do amazing jobs, but these two yeah, are not cliches on the other side. And so, yeah, I mean, they you're yeah. out executing a search party for like an 11 year old boy. And this is your, you know, kind of statement. And and yeah. I think this same Obviously, and we talked about this last week, too, but, you know, Will, Jonathan and Joyce are not, I would say, well regarded in the community as a whole, because this also plays out in how people see Jonathan. I think the level of seriousness that people keep placing on whether Will is even really missing, even his dad, is you know, infers that. So it's like, you know, I think everyone looks down on Joyce anyway. So the fact that her kid is missing is not nearly as big a deal as if, you know, I really feel like as if like Mike were missing. If Mike went missing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that kind of leads us into the next scene. So in this next scene, we're at the high school. Uh, Nancy and Barb. uh, Barb is the name of Nancy's friend that we met in episode one. So Barb. Um, Yeah. Uh, they're invited to a party at Steve's house. To be fair, Nancy is invited, but Barb yeah. is there. <laughs> so I guess she kind of gets invited uh, by association. Uh, and Jonathan is seen hanging some flyers in the high school. And yeah, Jonathan is not not well-liked uh, amongst this group, at least. Uh, they say, you know, have you ever seen anything sadder than that? Who wants to, you know, wh- who wants to bet that he I killed him himself? talking about Will, which was, like, so saddening. And, um, and the bet that, like, I bet he can't even speak or something, they say, like... Um, yeah. So it really kind of, like, in a very short scene, it really kind of paints the picture of who yeah. Jonathan is in in amongst social circles in high school, which is that he's probably a bit of a loner and, you know, the quiet one who probably kind of gets picked on, doesn't have many friends. And so kudos to Nancy. Uh, She walks away from the group of the more popular kids to go and talk to Jonathan and uh, say how sorry she is about Will. And they have, you know, a bit of a nice, nice exchange. Absolutely. I mean, not to bring an entirely different uh, series into this, but Jonathan just really reminded me of Daryl from The Walking Dead in this scene as kind of like outcast, especially in the early seasons, you know, what Daryl's life obviously was pre zombie apocalypse. Like it just such an outcast. People have this, you know, 
set up vision of what he's like that he you know and they're just they're joking but they're also kind of serious and then to see later you know a bit more of Jonathan's actual personality it's just really it's kind of heartbreaking to see you know for sure and so I would like to make changes to what I said I hoped would happen slash my prediction from episode one about the relationship of Steve and Nancy to the younger kids because I thought that Steve and Nancy were going to be the older siblings who are reluctantly pulled into the kids' adventures, yeah. et cetera. But I now would like to think that it is Nancy and Jonathan who are pulled in and that Steve is just kicked I to agree. the curve. Yeah, I think that's a really good... And yeah. you, you've got a lot more that kind of, I think, supports that this um, episode specifically, this episode. for sure. For sure. You can't have a hero no. who's a bully. <laughs> you can't be, like, super cool and a jerk and, yeah, like thinks of himself as way too smooth. Oh, and I also thought um, that scene, too, where they're being invited to the, well, that same scene, where they're being invited to his, Steve's house after school because he's having a party, that he, they drop that line that Steve's mom doesn't trust his dad, so that's why she's gone with him on this business trip. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, of course, you know, like, it's, it's kind of, like, fitting. Again, obviously, he comes from a pretty wealthy family, as we see, given the house that um, he lives in. And it's like, I think the parents in each of these scenarios is just like, you're really seeing the kid microcosm come out of the parents um, to the family right. kind of meeting. And while we're not meeting Steve's parents in person, at least not yet, the fact that the mom's like, I'm only going on this trip because, and that the fact that Steve knows that or his friends know that is like a joke. Um, I think yeah. it's a real indicator as to like Steve's level of playerness that has already been referenced as well. So yeah, for sure. And like there's a, there's a couple of sort of like 80s um, themes that you can right. pull out of this. So one one which I think that maybe it's leaning towards is kind of like the um, the underdog outcast guy might eventually end up with the beautiful, somewhat more popular or whatever, um, or at least hanging with the popular crowd girl you know, that she uh, forgoes popularity, if you will, to kind of like do the right thing and that, you know, she doesn't want to hang around with bullies or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, like, so what I kind of thought might might uh, might happen with Steve's character is that in, in some 80s movies, you definitely have uh, like the popular guy with yeah. a heart, you know. Um, and so I kind of thought it was going in that direction, but I'm just going to, I'm just going to shift my, my eighties, uh, comparison yeah. and go more for the underdog that's right. story. Jonathan so Jonathan. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's great. That's a great, great prediction today. And even the way they're interacting <laughs> between Jonathan and, and then Steve. Barb. Okay. I know that I keep going back to the Goonies on this particular, um, you know, like big, big brother, big sister, sibling relationship. But then just just saying that uh, in the Goonies, they also had, you know, the core sort of couple right. of the older kids, but then also the fun, the sort of funny friend. Um, hello, Barb. <laughs> Barb is definitely set up to be the funny. And, like, I think there are also that painful moment in, you know, teenagehood where it's like maybe you had these really great friends in elementary school and then you kind of maybe at high school those aren't the same friendships and poor Barb is like really you know forking here in the road from where Nancy seems to want to go in terms of you know she's getting attention for, sure. for the first time she's obviously really pretty and Barb's like this is not you you know we're gonna see that in a bit too but 
for sure. So yeah, yeah, so the next scene we see in the school, but we're into uh, with Lucas and Dustin, where Mike is supposed to be as well. All three of them are supposed to be in class. Mike has not shown up. Um, and so they are talking. The last thing that they know, of course, is that Eleven was going to do the doorbell ringing, knocking thing. Um, and that, you know, may have gone wrong. And we end up seeing a scene where uh, Mike's mom is leaving the house in her amazing station wagon. And (laughs) (laughs) that is like, that is the National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation station wagon to me always. Okay, so he's um, getting into the house. Obviously, mom's not supposed to know that he didn't go to school. And uh, (laughs) like Mike, Mike, he is, you're right, considering, well, and it's kind of funny, right? Because you're seeing it in Nancy, too. Someone who was obviously played by the rules her whole life, um, you know, two episodes now of not doing that. and, And Mike kind of similar too right um so yeah we see 11 get to come out of the basement and um go inside the the living room kind of tour the main level there's a great you know comment about the 22 inch tv which is 10 times bigger than dustin's which is just a great you know comment uh 11 looks at the family photos that are on the uh mantle and she says pretty about nancy so that's another word that she already has in her vocabulary um, and then they have a lot of fun playing with the dad's lazy boy, kind of making it recline and sit back up again. And just like another, you know, at one point he says, trust me when he's going to recline the lazy boy and she kind of lets him do it. So it's obviously another kind of trust building, friendship building scene. For sure. And so like definitely in the the lazy boy scene where they're really like bonding over this, you know, fun yet completely mundane thing you know it really kind of we see it we see it a little bit later too which I'll point out when we get to that scene but there's definitely uh, a bit of that um, sort of classic fish out of water is being introduced to sort of like the novelty of these mundane things and and uh, even though I mean it's just a chair it's just this like fun moment where she and Mike really bond over it and like of all of the things to show her it's, uh, you know, check out this chair, um, which, yeah, so, so uh, I thought, I thought it was pretty cute. Uh, so Jonathan is driving and he's, he, uh, he, the song, should I stay or should I go comes on the radio. So we have a flashback of him in his bedroom with Will and he's playing him this song. Uh, in the in the background, we can hear that Joyce is uh, yelling in the other room, and it turns out that she's yelling to Lonnie on the phone because Lonnie was supposed to come and take Will to a baseball game, but didn't show up. So um, in um, Will and Jonathan's conversation, it appears that that is pretty much a regular thing for Lonnie, and um, and Jonathan is being really sweet, comforting his little brother and telling him it's no big loss anyway. Will doesn't even like baseball. And uh, Lonnie never takes Will to do anything that Will actually likes, like going to the arcade and stuff. So, um, so yeah, he just uh, he tells him don't don't uh, don't like things just because other people tell you to. Just be true to yourself, type deal. So that was a a nice moment between Jonathan. I really like this scene. I think you really learned a lot because until this point, you haven't really seen how the brothers interacted, um, and they're you know, super paralleled by Mike and Nancy and we could, I'm probably beating a dead horse here, but, um, you know, I think there are enough years apart that there's not always great sibling cohesion at those very different ages. And I think you see that mm-hmm. with Mike and Nancy. Nancy doesn't want to play with her little brother anymore. He's not cool. You know, he's playing Dungeons and Dragons in the basement and she's talking to boys. 
And, uh, you know, they just bicker at the table a lot. And I think, you know, Will and Jonathan's family, they don't have that luxury of just fighting all the time. And I think if they don't have each other, then that's a big deal. I mean, I think Joyce is doing her best, but she's working a lot. She's obviously um, a single parent. Lonnie does not seem to really, like, have any. Yeah, he is not involved. And, um yeah, so I thought that that was a really great kind of parallel to show you just how close these boys really were. And and I think it better helps For you understand sure. what Jonathan must be going through. And then that piece, too, about Lonnie wanting to take him to a baseball game, not because Will is super into baseball, but he makes the comment of he's trying to force you to like normal things. Normal yeah, things, a great yeah. kind of um, intro into, again, people not taking it, or at least Lonnie not taking it over least seriously that Will's missing because he's kind of a weird kid, you know, uh, sure. and rather that being embraced, I mean, at Mike's house, they get to go have the brain of the basement and play Dungeons and Dragons for what, 12 hours or whatever. For sure. Yeah. They are, they are free to Absolutely. nerd out in Mike's basement. Okay. I'm going to tell you such a quick story, but this like, this scene felt a bit nostalgic for me because, um, so FYI for listeners, Jess is actually my sister-in-law, um, married to my, my older brother who is six years older than me. And I remember, I think that I was probably about 11. It was like my 11th birthday. So Pete would have been 16. And he gave me um, a Pearl Jam CD for my birthday. And I remember being like, I don't understand this, but it's awesome (laughs) because I got it from my brother. (laughs) You know, you have that like older sibling um, sort of idolization and... uh, yeah, like it was really cute, Will, you know, so after Jonathan is telling Will, don't like something just because someone tells you to, but you do really That's like right. the Clash, so right? And Will's like, oh, yeah, I definitely really like Exactly, it. to have his mixtape with Joy Division, Bowie, and the Smiths on it. So you're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. And, and the idolization of an older brother, especially when your dad is, you know, so out of the picture, I'm sure they're just incredibly close. So I really like that scene. Okay. Um, okay, so then we go um, forward from there. We see Joyce um, pulling into a store. We get a, a quick snapshot of the main street where we get to see this really great throwback Radio Shack uh, sign. Oh, nice. <laughs> I miss that. Um, anyway, and she pulls into what looks like a department store, obviously where she works. We talked about this last um, episode, but we weren't quite sure. She wore kind of like a uniform, but... Yeah, I thought she was wearing like custodial scrubs type deal, like maybe that she, you know, worked as a um, a housekeeper at a hotel or something like that, you know. Um, But uh, but yeah, it must have been a a smock for this sort of general Agreed, exactly. And so she's trying to get a new phone because her phone got um, fried in the strange conversation at the end of the last episode. And um, she's obviously speaking to whoever... I don't know if it's the store owner or her manager, but someone who is in charge and she's not able to pay the $22 for the phone. And the guy obviously seems reluctant to kind of help her out. And I really think this is a great scene too, where she's a little bit like, Oh, I don't really have the money. I gave it to Jonathan for the posters. And then she just kind of builds confidence throughout the whole thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So then she's like, I was hoping for an advance and he kind of begrudgingly says that. And then she says two, you know, two weeks, um, for that advance. Right. And then she says, you know, I've never been, she worked for 10 years. I think she said she's worked there, something like that. And right. she's never missed a shift, never been late, never been sick. And 
She's like, I, I'm exactly. not asking. I, I need You know, this. my son is missing. This, this is crazy. Is so she ends up with the phone, a two weeks advance on her paycheck, and a pack of camels. Which And a pack of camels. Um, but yeah, just a good kind of demonstration of Joyce being like, no, this is, you know, what I deserve. And it absolutely. And uh, she kind of fights for it and wins. Yeah, definitely. Um, so back at Joyce's place, there's a, a man dressed as a repairman knocking on the door, but we soon see that it is not, in fact, a repairman. He is with Dr. Brennan uh, and others from the laboratory. And when he gives the all clear that nobody's home, they come out in hazmat suits and they have, you know, like a Ghostbuster type device where they are detecting what I can only assume is sort of signals of the creature. So it leads them directly back to the shed where Will was taken. And um, I did pay pay closer attention to the closed captioning this time. So the word that they use every time that they see, you know, this um, organic matter that's left behind is um, oozing. It says the word (laughs) oozing on the closed captioning. The sound Uh, is oozing. Yeah. Oozing. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Brennan goes back, he sees oozing on the boards and his like little device goes off the charts and then he says, extraordinary. And then, and end of scene. <laughs> um, so I know I have him as Dr. Brenner. Is that, but I could absolutely oh. be wrong about no, you're probably right. I wrote it down as Brennan when you told me his name last time. Um, and, and he was referred to by name this whole, this whole episode, I think. He's just right. I don't to, remember yeah. seeing. Should probably check. Well, yeah. we can check that in the good old IMDb. But um, that's technology. Right. Yeah, I thought it's funny because I don't know if it's intentional or not. But I thought this last episode too that they're the equipment that they wear when they are you know the first one it's when they're in that basement and now in the backyard of Joyce's house it looks like kind of amateurish like they taped the closing the like armholes closed in the first one and they've got these like hazmat suits but they don't look like they would really protect you against especially if they know what this creature is and given what we're seeing the creature doing it's like what is the what are these like white material suits possibly doing for you Uh, right and like what is the creature i assume it's the creature what what is what is it giving off that they that they cannot they look like um, ghostbusters like which Ghostbusters are supposed to look like they're amateurs because they are. They literally build their like business by wearing like random things and driving an old hearse around, you know. So it like it kind of has that feel to it that it's it's like right. it's certainly not like this you know level five classified CIA you know organization. At least if it is, it's it's not giving off that vibes. I can't tell if that's the show making a tribute to like kind of eighties horror movies or if it's that these guys are just not that organized but they did have a van that was you know i think they did have a van deceptive name on the side of it so (laughs) that's right classic clandestine organization van (laughs) Uh, yeah so i don't i don't know and you're right like they're outside with these like breathing apparatuses on i mean it's been over 24 hours everyone else has been breathing just fine um without these things so yeah i have a question absolutely yeah, like, is the creature radioactive yeah. yeah and and i expected then did his little reader thing go crazy in the shed because i don't i noticed the family oozing yeah. did yeah. it when he pointed it towards okay. the oozing it did it it, it did go yeah. off yeah so but yes the oozing extraordinary so it 
it's like they're surprised by what this thing is. And yet. And so did this thing hatch from the cocoon that we saw in episode one, do you think? Because like, that yeah, cocoon looked like they it, didn't know it was coming. I feel like that cocoon looked occupied. Yeah, I agree with like the lights pulsating from it and stuff. So maybe this is like the mother bee. But like, it, but then it looks like a man with big shoulders when it, you see it in profile. Like an yeah, alien? like don't you find it just looks like a big kind of like Frankenstein guy? Like it doesn't look like an insect. It's like it walks. Except okay, well I'm jumping ahead. Except right. like Barb. Exactly. If if that was in fact the same creature, I mean, like that was some predator. Okay, I have predator written down there. too, and I was about to say, like, what if this is actually a predator prequel slash sequel? <laughs> oh my god, that would be amazing! Surprise <laughs> world, just what you needed. Another predator. <laughs> it definitely felt definitely felt a lot more predator, and like the noises even kind of felt that way. So. Really yes, yeah. totally. Well, we've just solved it. I don't think we need to watch any more episodes. <laughs> You're welcome, right. world. Yeah, so I guess there's a lot more questions than answered in terms of Dr. Brenner and his stuff and what the equipment is. But, yeah. Uh, okay, so moving on, we're back to Mike's house where he's playing hooky with Eleven and he's showing her all his toys, which was just such a great, another great 11-year-old moment where he's like, this is Yoda and this yeah. is my dinosaur called Rory. I'm very pointed that he was like, this is Yoda who can move stuff with yeah, his mind. Yeah, exactly. And she's like, exaggerated yeah. wink. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, and then, okay, this really reminded me of uh, The Fifth yeah, Element. I can totally see. Do you remember that the scene? It's a movie yeah. I haven't seen in a while. Yeah. A long, a long time. Um, yeah. yeah. So she moves over to the science fair trophies. She sees the picture of the four boys together. Very obviously reacts when she sees Will um, and Mike is trying to figure out what that means. But before he can get to the bottom of it, Mike's mom is home. And, uh, you know, he not very stealthily tries to hide Eleven in his closet. She's obviously not really interested in it. Um, and he promises he's not going to tell his mom because she's made it very clear that she doesn't want to. And this is one of those words that we know she doesn't know what it means, right? So here's the definition mm-hmm. of promise, something you can't break. Um, and he closes the closet. She gets a real panic attack when the closet door is closed and we get a flashback for her. A really interesting one okay, here. So- this is a really interesting scene Absolutely. for sure. So she's being, you know, picked up and carted under somebody's arm. Um, she's in her hospital gown. She looks basically the same yeah. age as now. I mean, it's the same actress sure. and everything. It looks like she's in the basement again of that building or at least some sort of, you know, basement lab, no windows kind of thing. And she's yelling, Papa. I know. Okay, so this is what makes me doubt my theory or slash tinfoil hat theory. Like legit your dad? Yeah. Like maybe this is how they are getting test subjects is they are literally like growing them in the lab. You know? It like a uh, he is essentially the sperm donor and they have you know But I don't think it necessarily like it doesn't necessarily set revoke your theory depending on how young Young, yeah, Hopper's right. girl was when she was taken. And I mean, she would, I guess, have to be pretty young because she would have to basically not have language. Because I agree with you, it seems like these kids are being, these kids. I say that because she is numbered 11. I have nothing else to base that off of. Yeah. Because, 
Yeah. So like, so ultimately, you know, so what happened to 11 is not what happened to Will, right? So, I mean, at first, before we were going in, before I even saw episode one, when I just kind of saw what the show was about, I was like, okay, well, you know, this kid gets taken and then another kid escapes and she knows, you know, because they, they were both taken, but they were taken if in fact 11 was taken and not raised in the lab, they were taken by two separate entities, one taken by the creature possibly, and then the other, you know, taken by, by the lab. But so, okay. So I did wonder about what the significance of calling him Papa would be. And then also like this was very recently, as you said, it looks like she is pretty much the same age. So why did she not use her telepathy? Was she, it, it was, was it made incapacitated? Right. Did she not have it yet? You know, she took out armed men in about 10 seconds last episode. So in this one, there has to have been something that was preventing her from being able to use it to prevent them from throwing her in this Absolutely. cell. Uh, no, that's a really good point. They, they, they throw her in this windowless yep. metal box, you know, at the end, and she wants out. Uh, but, but yeah, so that was, I mean, it was a short scene, but it was definitely, there Like there were definitely some questions raised there. Yeah, I guess I, we really don't know. I think that it doesn't necessarily discount your theory in the sense that, you know, Dr. Brenner seems like a total, you know, psychopath slash egomaniac. And if these, you know, he's getting these people either these kids either before they're learning to talk or even after they've been so traumatized or something like maybe something else has happened that they've lost. Like may- maybe they, yeah, maybe exactly. they brainwash them after they steal them. So they lose language or whatever it he, is, you know, you know, the father figure. So he teaches them Papa to refer to him because he's like, these are my children and maybe not literally yes. their ch- his children, but just like, and it's a, a way perhaps to coerce them into doing yeah. what he wants. If he, if he, um, sort of creates this relationship right. or this, you know, um, and yet he obviously perception of a has relationship. no problem locking her in a scary room by herself. So it's like, she is looking to him for help. Um, and he just watches very calmly as this is done. It does not seem to be done against his will. In fact, it looks like he is ordering it. Ordering yeah. So it, you're yeah. really kind of seeing, um, you know, because it's like, how did she even figure out to escape? from this and I think that obviously this is all tied together in the sense that she may have very little language but she certainly can feel the betrayal of someone that at one point she trusted in the fact that she's trying to get him to save her and he won't so yeah for sure uh, so Mike has been busted by his mom. Uh, so we're back in his living room and he tells his mom the reason why he's not at school is because he didn't feel good. And his mom is really um, surprisingly understanding. Uh, given what we've seen thus far, I kind of thought that she was going to, uh, you know, give give Mike a hard time um, for being home. But she says she understands because uh, Mike must be really upset about Will going missing. And that's kind of true. I mean, well, very true. I just hadn't really considered at this point because all the four boys are so like, let's take action. Let's go do something about it. They seem to be more action oriented um, in their concern than sort of wallowing in sadness. Yeah. Um, but it is true. I mean, like, I mean, at least from a mom's perspective, it would be understandable if Mike was like, you know, I'm not going to school. Absolutely. Uh, uh, but that isn't the case. Mike is, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, obviously missing his friend, but, uh, but yeah, this was just a, 
good excuse to not be to not be at school that his mom uh, kind of gave him a pass on. So uh, he comes back to his room and uh, and retrieves Eleven from the closet. She seems uh, surprised, in my opinion, or relieved, certainly. But like, I feel that she might have, you know, based on what we saw in that flashback, had um, a fear that she would be left in Agreed. there, you know, for a long period of time or indefinitely, whatever. And when Mike comes right back, she ha- is you know, curled up in a ball and she's been crying and um, he says, are you okay? And she nods her head and says, yes, yeah, promise. Um, so there's definitely a theme where she's sort of bringing back the words that she's learning and all of the words that she's learning are ones where, um, you know, it's, I don't know. They're like, I mean, some of the words, I mean, promise and friendship and um, understanding yeah. and, you know, it, these these are all like empathetic yeah that, absolutely yeah yeah uh yeah so end of that scene yeah and then um, just a super quick scene where we see joy set up her new phone which is not a wall mount anymore and so she's got this awkward kind of scooch to get a chair close to it and she's obviously <laughs> just gonna do absolutely nothing but sit by the phone and wait for what she's right. convinced as well so set yeah, up there definitely uh, so the search party is still going on in the woods. Hopper and the uh, and and one of the cops are standing at the edge of a cliff. Uh, Hopper comments that the water at the bottom, if you if you hit it from that height, if you were to fall or jump from that height, it would turn into cement and break every bone in your body. Um, and I think that I mean, like at at a glance, this seems like a bit of a throwaway. But again, like I'm convinced that everything they're introducing us to at this point is going to come back at a later date. You know, so whether it's that Eleven is running from the bad guys and she jumps off this cliff that would have killed anyone else. But, you know, she survives it. I mean, I don't know what her abilities are. Interesting. I just I really read the scene as like, this is how stupid the cops he works with are or who work for him. (laughs) This cop was like, oh, well, you know, whatever this guy's name is, jumped off drunk and he was fine. And Hopper's just like, how do you believe that? Like, you would obviously die if you were to do that. And the guy's like, like the cops almost like, really? Like, uh, yeah, and they're nah, so high nah. up. I mean, like the camera angle. So like, and so, yeah, I never even thought of it that way. Um, I just assumed it was a point to, again, drive home that Hopper is the unique. I feel like it's going to be, it's going to be really hilarious. Like at some point when we get to the end of the series and I can go back and listen to like all of my really, <laughs> oh, my Kim's predictions, Kim's analysis is everything means something. <laughs> Absolutely right. We will yeah. see. Um, so um, Hopper uh, Hopper gets a call to go to Benny. Benny's. I know. So, of course, we know that Benny was killed by uh, Dr. Brenner and his goons in episode one uh but when hopper gets there he sees that it's been staged as a suicide so we find out here that um that hopper used to be a big city cop when uh when one of his police officers says you know a disappearance and then a suicide must feel like you're a big city cop again um and so it you know benny has been placed in a chair on the table with uh the you know the gun next to his head where he's been shot in the head and um, one of the police officers says, uh, suicide, question mark, to the chief. And Hopper says, like, pointed pause. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, he doesn't seem convinced. Okay, but I was kind of disappointed with him here because I really thought he would do, would be able to, I mean, I think a suicide is very hard to force in, if you really know what you're looking for. Like, you know, because mm-hmm. if you didn't actually pull the trigger, blah, 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 CSI crap. Yeah, but like how, how much, how much DNA true. and stuff Absolutely. do they, but even how much like, in true, but even like, um, you know, the way everything is sitting, like the, the gun is neatly placed by his hand if you really used it to shoot yourself in the head, you know, would it really be, I just like, I guess I was just thinking, cause he then referenced later, he references later that yes, what is like, he's got bad luck. And I agree with you that he's probably skeptical, but I wanted him to be more like, this is the guy who found that little ding in the wall, you know, knowing that Will had been chased through yeah. the house. I was just kind of hoping there'd be a little bit more like, this can't be a suicide. Like I, I totally got the impression that he was skeptical. Okay. And so my like so the my take on it was that I felt that he did not want to cause alarm. Right. You know, in the same way that when he walks out of the shed at the end of episode right. one, when he is drawn to the shed and he gets freaked out and he walks out of that shed knowing that something is really wrong with Will and he's like search party right now let's yeah. get it done and he doesn't explain himself and he doesn't say you know like there's a killer on the loose or whatever you know he just kind of says it and so I kind of I get the impression of Hopper that he keeps the inner workings inner until he has something concrete to That's say about it. That's a great point. It. No for sure. And like so I really I got that you know the the kind of pausing you know and then a, yeah. mm-hmm, instead of instead of a real answer made me think that, you know, his wheels are turning. That's a really good point. Um, So we go back to Jonathan, who is driving to Lonnie's. He had referenced earlier to Hopper that if the cops show up, Lonnie's going to run and he's really good at hiding and they'll never see him again. And so um, Jonathan wants to go himself. And obviously he's decided he will. Um, We learn that this is in the city, which I think we still don't know exactly what that is, but um, shows up in a neighborhood. Lonnie's very young girlfriend answers the door. She's obviously never met Jonathan before. Um, Jonathan bursts in. His first reaction is to like kind of yell throughout the house, Will, looking for him, um, you know, kind of expecting he might be there as well. And so we actually get to meet yeah. Lonnie for the first time. Um, and again, I kind of referenced it already a few times, so we don't have to go too much into it, but that same kind of reference from Milani about, oh, like, do you really know if he's missing? And then just blame of the way that their mom is handling them as kids, you know, just like, well, this is your mom's fault and she's blaming everything on me and I'm just the scapegoat, blah, blah, blah. And I think... For sure. The only, like, uh, honestly, um, one of the takeaways for me was that I was kind of of the impression until this scene that Lonnie was Will's dad, but not Jonathan's. Because Jonathan always referred to him as Lonnie. um, And, I mean, we didn't necessarily ever hear Will refer to him as dad. um, But we did, you know, hear Joyce uh, say that he's Will's father, etc. So I always, I, I... I guess I kind of thought there was the possibility at least that uh, Lonnie might have been a stepdad right. to Jonathan. But when, uh, when the girlfriend asks who asks, who's this? And Lonnie says, he's my oldest, obviously that cleared any. Well, of that it up. is quite a long time because there is a significant age difference between them that he was, must've mm-hmm. been at home. Um, right. Because he's both of their dads. And so that's kind of interesting in terms of, you know, Jonathan obviously knows him maybe around the house for more than, Will does. 
Um, and right. Yeah. And I, I felt too, like there was a struggle there of Jonathan almost wanting to believe, you know, what Lonnie was saying, but you've already seen that flashback where you hear Joyce on the phone being like, you have promised you were going to show up and take him to the game. What are you doing? And I think you really get a sense there that this is just a guy who's continually full of excuses and, you know, yeah, just doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, his own son is missing and he thinks it's either because his son is weird or because Joyce is a terrible parent. So yeah, like Joyce forgot yeah, where yeah. he is. Like, like really? No. And then, yeah, he's like, there's posters up, there's there's cops involved. No, that's not what it is. So, yeah. Um, so Lucas and Dustin get to Mike's place after school to find that Eleven is still there, and they kind of lose their mind over it. Uh, so <clears throat> Mike tries to convince them that, the, that uh, Eleven knows about Will. He thinks that she knows where he is. Um, Mike tells them that uh, telling anybody about Eleven would put them in danger, but Lucas is really adamant that they tell Mike's mom. Uh, So when he tries to leave to go and tell Mike's mom he can't open the door, Eleven uses telepathy to slam the door shut a couple of times. Uh, So she makes it known that she has this superpower. And then when they turn towards her after after, uh, she does that, her nose is bleeding. So that is interesting, too. I think it indicates... Well, maybe, but the like, it was a lot of door slamming, right? Like it was a lot, almost like that was a lot of exertion, and maybe that mm-hmm. um, doesn't fully get to why she wouldn't have used it before in the being locked up. But I mean, I don't think she can just use it to like grab the TV remote or something, you know? Like it's like it's gonna take a lot. Like out it costs her. Exactly. Her something. Um, yeah. And you didn't really see her. I guess you saw her because she ran into the boys, but after she she got the guys in the diner. Um, you know, you didn't really see if that took anything out of her. But yeah, the nosebleed is definitely super dramatic. What did you think? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I definitely got the impression that, um, you know, use of this power isn't free, that it's costing her in some way, like um, in terms of her energy or health or whatever. So I I, I kind of thought that it might either be um, the level of exertion, you know, for the particular task that she's doing, but it might be frequency, right? right? So she used it to stop the fan and then she used it to stop the bad guys with guns and now she's using it again to, to close the door on Lucas. So maybe use of it so so many times in such a short amount of time, Um, because I would think that like forcing the door closed even several times wouldn't be as much of an exertion as it would be to take down the bad guys. But then again, you know, maybe she did have a nosebleed after she took those guys down and it just wasn't showing anymore by the time she met up with guys and the guys in the woods. Absolutely. Uh, So we move back to Lonnie and Jonathan. I think we've already covered most of this, but just, yeah, we get to that, um, the point where the only, only other thing I guess too would be that Lonnie asks if Hopper's still the chief. And so I think the, you know, interaction between Joyce and Hopper is kind of coming out there um, as well, kind of reinforced by Lonnie. Um, So we know that that's the case too. For sure. Uh, so uh, back at the police station, Hopper's questioning a customer slash friend of Benny's uh, who was in the diner uh, the day that, that Benny died, which, of course, is the same day that uh, that Eleven meets Benny. So he see, said everything seemed normal with Benny. They were going to go fishing. The only thing out of the norm out of the norm was that a kid who he took to be a boy stole food from Benny's kitchen that day. So, of course, this perks Hopper right up. He um, immediately thinks of Will. 
Uh, he shows a picture of Will to to this guy, and uh, he says, nope, it's not him. Uh, but after some further prompting, he says that it might be, or it could be him um, if Will had a yeah, buzz cut. Because at that point, like, the friend doesn't know that it would ended up being a girl. Obviously, it was just Benny and her and Eleven when he ended up getting to know her a little bit better. So nobody, yeah, kind of knows what happened there. Right. Yeah. Um, so I guess moving on from there, Nancy's on the phone with Barb, Barb, she wants to go to the party at Steve's, um, and she's now convincing Barb that Barb needs to come and that she needs to lie to her parents and go to the party with her. So again, we're seeing that kind of like, she wants Barb to come as her friend, um, but she wants to really kind of push Barb out of her comfort zone. Barb is obviously not really comfortable with the idea or Barb. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> I know I'm jumping ahead, but I was like, I was so annoyed Absolutely. with Nancy. Like, seriously, yeah. Nancy, you're going to, like, push Barb to come. You're you're really kind of pressuring her to lie about it so you can so she, you can take her to this party so you don't have to go alone. And then you get there and you totally... And Barb knows everything that's going to happen. Like, she predicts the whole thing. And maybe, like... I know. Listen, Barb, Nancy, Absolutely. My Continue on from that. Like, <laughs> then they're at dinner again. And so Nancy is... This time, she's saying the reason she's going to be able to leave the house is because she's going to go to the special school assembly in, like, Will's honor, like a candlelight vigil kind of kind of concept. And, it, like, this is the second dinner uh-huh. in a row. So the first one was where she made that really snide comment that she's not allowed to go out because Will's missing. Like, how, you know, brutal that it's ruining her night. And then this time, mm-hmm. it's like, I should really be there. Like, I think she even said, yeah. And this is, like... It's so, it's crazy to me, too, because, like, we're seeing a couple of different sides of Nancy, right? So, on the one hand, she's the one who breaks away from the bullying. She's the one who feels like she has to go over and speak with Jonathan and, you know, and um, offer condolences when everybody else is just making fun of him. And then in the same breath, you know, she's using a candlelight vigil for... Yeah, I know. Like, get it together, Nancy. And then, of course, the boys are at this dinner, too, which is really funny. So Lucas and Dustin, <laughs> Dustin? Am I? Yeah, thank Dustin, you. Yeah. Are at the dinner. And at one point, Al very, like, brazenly sneaks down the stairs. I'm not really. I think she was going basement. back to the basement. Yeah, but, like, I don't know. Right in front of the family. And, yeah, Dustin just, like, hits the table twice. <laughs> He's like, sorry, like, spasm or something. And. Yeah, yeah, like everybody's acting incredibly weird. Again, mom is just like, whatever. This is just what my kids are like. It's like, oh, yeah. typical, typical exactly. boy. Uh, so it's it's uh, it's full night now, and uh, search party is uh, still going on in the woods for Will. Um, so yeah, I already talked about this little this little mm-hmm. gem earlier when um, the cops are asking questions uh, about, I mean, like, I think that it's pretty obvious that to the police officers, the explanation of, um, doesn't really make sense that the, that 11 is yeah. Will. So in the last scene when, you know, Benny's friend says that it could have been Will, um, they're saying, why would Will be at Benny's diner? Why would he have a buzz cut? And, um, and Hopper says, I don't know. I'll ask him when we find him. And then one of the cops comments, well, you can't ask a yeah. corpse. Yeah. Oh, God. Not cool. Not cool. Yeah. Not cool. Um, but uh, they are then alerted to someone having found something of interest. So it's a piece of uh, fabric that is um, uh, in a storm drain. And uh, I, it doesn't really show clearly, but I took it to be 
um, a real given that this fabric was from uh, a yes. women's hospital gown. Uh, so they um, they looked down this long, dark, small storm drain, and uh, and Hopper says, you know, if a kid was scared enough, you know, maybe they'd go in there. He references that uh, Will's brother said he likes hiding, so he's certainly thinking that this could be, um, you know, a lead for Will. So they follow the train of the drain pipe, and it leads them to the fenced, uh, restricted area of the the Hawkins lab- Laboratory. Yeah, which, like, because what, what is the Hawkins National Laboratory for the U.S. Department of Energy? I mean, when you first see it in the first episode, it seems very mm-hmm. undramatic, you know, and yet you see this restricted area is like a 15 foot fence with barbed wire on the top of it. Like, and then everybody just kind of like stands there and looks in like it just, it seems like a lot of security for, you know, what the very kind of, I don't know, uninteresting name of it is. So I think that there's, it would be interesting to get more insight into like what the locals think that place is like, Right. Like, we obviously know the reason why there's a 15-foot-high fence and barbed wire. But to them, I mean, if it's supposed to be sort of like an everyday yeah, government building, then, then Exactly. That, like, yeah. you're keeping all of these things either in or out. And if you're just like an energy yeah. bureaucracy, whatever, then... This this is a stupid question, maybe, but like, what kind of jurisdiction would a local sheriff have to search a restricted yeah. area for of a government facility? I know, I... You're right. That's a great question. I mean, I imagine that maybe will be a question that comes in that they probably it's like maybe they will go and try and figure it out on the property and won't be able to or something. But right. yeah. And and that's another thing, too, I wonder, because it's such a small town. People I mean, I don't know the population of the of Hawking Hawking, but um, mm, I mean, it, everyone kind of seems to yeah. know each other for the most. Well, part. again, it's just a question of like, how is that building full of people like it seems like the whole right. Town would have so to I work was there. like, does Bro- Doctor yeah. Brenner, you know, like have a presence within the town? Do people and know who he is? And the, the man, like where Joyce yeah. works and stuff, or right? Although now that I think about it, in the last episode, the teacher introduced himself to Hopper. True. I mean, they've never met before. So it's not the teacher be... again tonight, and he's the one who found the yes, hospital. He's the one who yeah. found the fabric. Yeah, exactly. So I guess it must be of a size where. You know a lot of people, but True. not everybody. Point. Or maybe Mr. Clark is new and he's secretly the monster. So there could be that. that You're welcome, is... everybody. Just theories. We'll go yeah. back to <laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> Hi, I've never met you before because I'm actually not the teacher. <laughs> All the languages they flick. Okay. So moving on. We're back at Mike's place. Eleven is in the basement. Um this is the first time we've gotten to see the boys with her since she used her telepathy to slam the door on them a bunch of times. They're obviously super impressed and that they would never have tried to tell on her if they knew she had superpowers. I love that. She had started with that when she first met them. Things have been so much easier. Um, And this is where we find out she doesn't know what friend means. um, And basically the definition comes to, you know, things like friends can tell each other things that parents don't know, um, getting to that trust point. And then we see a great example of a spit swear uh, from Dustin. So yeah, I think it's just that conveyance again, another trust empathy word that she is not familiar with. Right. For sure. 
Um, so then just a really quick, um, quick scene where Barb and Nancy arrive at Steve's party. Uh, there's a little bit of, um, changing in the car and talking about where to park, but in a nutshell, and a uh, great quote from Barb here, you are not this stupid. I was like, thank you, Barb. <laughs> thank you, Barb. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, Barb is essentially telling Nancy exactly what Steve's I- intentions are when they go to this this party and Nancy's like I, I don't truly believe that Nancy doesn't realize well, what's going on well I think a real right? great for that DM where she's like is that a new bra like are you wearing new underwear just because you don't expect anything to happen at this party like that's yeah exactly. and then I'm sorry like I mean kudos to you Barb for being a great friend you deserve Absolutely. more from team Barb me. Team bar. Uh, so then we move forward and we see we, it's a great cut because you see, you know, that last discussion is one of the bar of the bra. And then you get a trail of clothing leading up to a bed and you for a split second think that's what's happened. But it's actually Hopper's house and he's in bed with um, a woman and then he goes outside. He lives right on a lake or something. And mm-hmm. um, I also had the close caption on this time, and we found out that the woman's name is Sandra, but I didn't know if I had met her before. But usually when they identify someone on close captioning, it's because you know her. Like, you know what I mean? They would they didn't just say, like, woman. Yeah. Um, I don't remember seeing I don't her either, so then. I don't know if they just kind of gave that away, but often they won't. But, um, yeah, so Hopper obviously can't sleep. He's outside smoking and drinking and thinking, and she comes out to ask him what is, what's wrong. And this is where you get, yeah, those two great, Cues, so he said he feels cursed, and this is because there hasn't been anyone to go missing in Hawkins since 1923, and the last suicide was 1961. Um, oh my God! You know what this means? What? the The kids aren't being snatched. There hasn't been a missing. Person. Oh yeah, great call. Absolutely. Yeah, so eleven wasn't snatched. Eleven is obviously also not Hopper's That's daughter right. then. Another Tana theory when he adopts her <laughs> happily ever after at the end of all of that. That could also work. But yeah, so they 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 can't no, you're be right. kidnapped. Yeah. You know, they Which again I feel in like in a small town if like eight, eleven kids had gone missing, of course nobody would be allowed to bike at night yeah. either. Sure, of course. Unless they're being they're being snatched from yeah. the city True. and brought there, you know. Maybe that's what yeah, everybody who's in that building is from. But yes, essentially, basically, <laughs> nothing bad has ever happened here, and suddenly, this has happened in two days. And and I think we're what he's saying there is exactly what you're saying, Kim. Is you know, it's not a coincidence. Like that's just too crazy to to be a coincidence. Yeah. So it's just such big things to have happened. For sure. Um, so back in Mike's basement. So eleven is. Um, uh, attempting to explain to the boys where Will is. So she is using the Dungeons and Dragons playing board, but she knocks off all of the um, characters, all the pieces, and flips the board over so it's just a black square and then puts the character representing Will in the middle. And so Mike asks, is he, you know, where is he? And she says, he's hiding. And is he hiding from the bad men? And she says no and puts down the Demogorgon. I think it is. Essentially, it's a giant monster to indicate that he's hiding from that. Yeah. But, like, hiding from it or in her, yeah, in her lingo or limited language, it's hiding hiding the same as captured given she was being held in, you know what I mean? Like, captivity. Because I just can't imagine he's hiding because... 
doesn't it seem so I... evident that he was taken? Okay, well, I have some really bizarre <laughs> theories about I this. Know, you did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so like, hear me out, but this might be really out there. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna throw it out there, right? But okay, so we haven't gotten there yet, but I think that it's coming up really soon where Joyce has this real crazy experience with another phone call and lights mm. and all of that stuff. So I'll maybe talk about my theory a little bit more when all of that stuff hap- stuff happens. But I mean, I feel like there's another worldliness to this right. whole thing. I feel like Will is perhaps hiding, like not on this earth. Okay, let's move forward. Cause like, that, this is an excellent point because it also gets to kind of what ends up happening to Barb and how that really happens. So, yes. okay, let's, let's move right. forward. From we know that that's how she's described that he's missing, um, yeah. So we move forward to Jonathan. He's at the part of the woods, um, which is now cordoned off with police tape, where we found Will's bike where it had been missing. He has a camera with him. He's taking these pictures around um, where it was missing, and they're kind of being lit, lit up by the flash. And then he hears screams, so he follows us through the woods, and that's when we end up in Steve's backyard. We're in Steve's house, right? Yeah. Yeah. Steve's backyard and there's a pool. And so the other friends, Tommy and I can't remember the girl's name, uh, Carol, Tommy and Carol are threatening to throw each other in the pool. And it turns out that's where Nancy is. Right. So um, Jonathan is watching this through the woods. They don't know he's there and he's got his camera with him. And this is where we see um more douchey steve behavior so he shotguns a beer and then i don't know nancy to show off is decides she's gonna do one uh barb is super not impressed and nancy's really kind of trying to peer pressure her to shotgun a beer herself and she poor barb stabs herself in her thumb while trying to cut the hole out for I know. And like Nancy just looks like so disappointed in her. Like she's just like, oh my God, Barb, you're so embarrassing. Like I just feel like it was like, she's a terrible friend. She didn't even go with her. Like that's a pretty deep cut. She didn't even go with her to the bathroom to like help her clean it or like after it. She's just like fend for yourself. Yeah. Anyway, and everyone ends up in the pool while no one cares about (laughs) Barb off with herself. Oh, yeah. And like, just as a quick side note, I mean, Jonathan, we're rooting for you, but you are not doing yourself any favors hiding <laughs> in the bushes, sure. taking creeper photos of everybody. I mean, yeah. that's not, I mean, so because everything happens for a reason in my world, I really think that an analysis of yeah. those photos might uh, at some point, you know, lead to some clues, but I well, mean, things are going to get really, yeah. So yeah. let's go, go maybe to the last scene, but yeah, I mean, there's going to be a weird trail to follow tomorrow after all of this. Right. Uh, okay. Then, so we're, we're with Joyce now who has, she's been awoken by a phone call. It is the same as the last one. So lots of static and breathing, just this weird phone call. But then when she continues to yell Will's name at, he breaks breaks in and says mom throughout uh, through all the noise and as he says mom the lights in Joyce's house yeah. flicker um so there's another electric shock the phone goes dead the lights start flickering throughout the house and all of a sudden should i stay or should i go which we have already associated with well earlier in this episode um it starts playing in Jonathan's room 
So Joyce is obviously a bit freaked out. So she goes to Jonathan's room, finds no one's no one there. But this is where so Joyce says Will's name questioningly, like Will. You know, she is putting pieces together already that this is a communication attempt Mm -hmm. of some kind. At least you know she feels it is um, from Will. So she is interpreting these flashing lights and music playing as a a communication. the light bulb flares when she says Will's name and then it goes out and the music shuts off. And then the wall like bends outward. It's like the wall is made of rubber and there are hands on the other side of it. Although it was much more than, you know, it was much bigger than the size of hands, but it was like, it was like being pushed outward from the other side and she loses her mind (laughs) Uh, and runs and runs out of the house to the car. But as she's starting up the car, the music starts playing again. The music that means will to her. And so she reconsiders. She doesn't take off. She goes back yeah. into the house. Yeah, I mean, a really freaky scene. They do a great job with the suspensefulness of what exactly is going on. And on the closed captioning, you do get uh, confirmation that it's Will saying mom. So you you do know it's yeah. him for sure. And yeah, so you're thinking this ties into the otherworldliness, then that's a sense that maybe that's Will on the pushing through the wall. I don't know that I I don't know whether I think that it's Will on the other side of yeah. the wall. Although although I I I I feel like there there is um you know I think that, that I don't think that Will is on planet yeah. Earth. <laughs> I don't really know. I was thinking another dimension yep. or something. And then, I mean, maybe it was because I was looking for clues. But then when like 11 flips over uh, the the Dungeons and Dragons board, so it's just right. a blank space. It's just an empty blank space is where she sets Will in the middle of it. You know, if Will was hiding in a place, you know, um, she could put the character on a map she could equate the game board to you know the to the town of hawking hawkins Hawkins? Hawkins? yeah Yeah. um but instead she flipped it over i mean really this could be me reading too much into things no i have a good theory um, because i was definitely thinking it was the monster um like i was super terrified for her um in terms of like what was in the room, that it was the monster trying to lure her in. It was the monster. Yeah. Through. And then, right. And then the other thing could be too, that, I mean, okay, so follow me down this rabbit hole. Uh, so like I, a hundred percent feel that will has been snatched by the creature. Right. So if the creature is otherworldly, then maybe, you know, if it's an alien of some kind, or if it's from a different dimension, I don't know, I'm throwing things out there, but maybe he took Will back to right. that place. And now Will is stuck in this right. place and hiding, hiding in this, you know, new and different place from, from the creature, you know? So it's not that he's hiding and has not been snatched. He has, but now that he is snatched and he's hiding in that place and can't get home. Yeah. No, good point. And maybe that's, maybe the kids like 11 are an attempt to bridge between like this universe and that one. Yeah. Like I would, like my theory would be that, you know, these, you know, scientists or whoever discover this creature, um, whether it's an alien or whatever it is, right. Um, that has these abilities and they are essentially trying to, um, they're testing on human subjects in order to give humans the 
some of the abilities that this creature yeah. has, right? Um, and they're doing it, they're, they're testing on kids, right? So I, I don't think that Eleven is from yeah, agreed. That, yeah. that world, right? Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so I think that it's probably, you know, I would be leaning to, toward agreeing with you on it being maybe the creature who was, you know, pushing through the wall. Or maybe, you know, because maybe in trying to communicate, Will gives away his position. Yeah, you know? and turns away, turns off and back on again. Right. Yeah, it's inter- it, Yeah, I guess I really, I don't know. I was super impressed that Joyce goes back in. Um, you know, and I really think that speaks to just like how strong she is throughout this whole thing. Um, you know, while while people are trying to paint her as being off, you know, like she's not sane, whatever they're insinuating, like she's just like, you're right. So convinced that that is Will that she's like, no, I'm going to march back in there to where all these like lights and sound is happening. And you don't get any resolution after that in this episode. Right. So she's marched back into a house that has that stuff happening and we don't know what happened after that. Right. Um, so maybe just moving forward to the last scene, um, we are back at the party. Um, Barb is coming out of the bathroom and everybody's in from the pool and Nancy's going to go up with Steve to get dry clothes, quote unquote. And she very determinedly sends Barb home. She says, go home. I'm fine. I'll catch a ride home. Barb is not impressed. Um, so we see Nancy go upstairs. She's, undresses for Steve they kiss they're obviously gonna um, spend some time together in his room and that's when they cut back to mm-hmm. poor Barb sitting out by the pool obviously doesn't want to leave her friend in this situation alone it goes against everything you've been taught um and so she's sitting on the diving board with her feet in the water just waiting she's bleeding profusely still um from this I know. Wound. What is the significance of yeah. the blood? I know. I've seen it too because there's this drip off the wound and into the water where it kind of plummets. And I, I mean, I can't, like, the creature is not like a shark. Like, I can't imagine it's like, ooh, blood. Uh, <laughs> blood in the water. I don't know if it was just like to distract you because the blood drips in the pool and it, almost simultaneously you hear that growl sound and this time you get her looking up and this is where you and I both think there's just this real predator thing happening because it looks like a mouth that opens in four directions like that's what I was getting yeah Yeah. and she looks up and at the same point Jonathan who's been in the woods um, and taking all these creepy pictures his camera is jammed so he is looking down at his camera at the moment in which this is happening and yet he looks up I mean like almost instantaneously absolutely and there is nothing there now the lights are out because again you see that same you know flare of electricity but it there's not enough time it seems for her to go missing and this creature to be moving around right like i feel like it can't necessarily be a matter of like creature takes barb under his arm and then runs through the neighborhood you know, I feel like maybe they travel through electricity. Yeah, I think you're you know? you're right because there's no and and is the camera jamming related? Like, is he able to just like that's I know a camera is mechanical, especially back then, and not electrical. But uh, or maybe it's just mm-hmm. bad luck. But yeah, he wouldn't have been able to. Yeah, if it was a traditional monster, and he literally has to pick her up and move her. First of all, the right. lack of screaming we've now seen twice. Right, like there's just yeah. complete silence. There's no verbal cue. And then I would be really interested to to find out like the purpose of 
of the snatching. Yeah. I mean, is it for, is it for yeah. food? You know, like what does the creature need these things absolutely. for? What things? I mean, people. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. So we're kind of left on other than poor Barb, innocent victim, and all this. Mm. And this is what I mean by it's going to be interesting tomorrow because Nancy thinks she's gone home because Nancy's mine. Yeah. So. Who is going to be, yeah, is Jonathan going to give away his place in the woods that he was sitting there watching them? Um, and what's going to happen yeah. from that? Nancy and Barbara are not supposed to be at this house party. They're supposed to be at the vigil. Mm-hmm. And where are they going to know where, where Barbara went missing? Is it going to, you know, is it going to, but her yes. car will still be there a couple blocks away. Um, exactly. And you know, when this comes out, things are going to blow absolutely. up because with Will disappearing, a lot of people are dismissing it as, you know, oh, he's playing hooky or he ran away or yeah. whatever it is. And then um, with Benny, although we know the truth, you know, it seems as if people in general, at least, are accepting that it is a suicide. Yeah. But then you throw in another disappearance and I mean, you can't. You can't yeah, won't you just it. be Hopper being like, this is too much coincidence. This will be, and and I bet um, that Barb is from, you know, maybe a more, like, stable home in the sense that they can't just be like, oh, well, he maybe he ran off to his dad's in the city. You know, like, she's, um, if, the, if that's the case and she's even, like, a more wealthy family or something, then you'll have more kind of clout, maybe, to raise concerns because i feel like even mike mm-hmm. and nancy's mom is not worried enough like i know she's saying don't go out after dark but like even the adults don't seem to be taking this like they should be i mean most of the cops except for hopper right. are not like i don't know it just this i think will get everybody a lot more yeah i mean like in a small town like this and and someone goes missing for the first time in 60 yeah. years and maybe it's because nobody's gone missing in 60 years that they're being a little yeah. lackadaisical about it. But when someone hasn't gone missing in that long and then they do, you would think that you you shouldn't be able to get away with telling a fib and then going That's out right. all night. You know, like, I, I think that that place would be on yeah. lockdown. And it, I'm sure it will be after this. And also, it like, will be Nancy, now. I hope you hold guilt for this because it is you mm-hmm. who brought Barb to this house. Not cool. You did so Nancy. Nancy's fault. So yeah, so after okay. a little bit future in a disappearance also. of Barb, it was hard to then not be like, well, what happens in episode three? But um, we appreciate you staying through this quite lengthy, actually, podcast to discuss episode two in great detail. If we have this much to say after two episodes, imagine how much we'll have to talk about at the If finale. you've gotten to this point, I feel like you deserve a prize, and you should reach out. Just, just to be clear, we offer That's no right, prizes. No real prizes. You deserve one, but we don't have any. That's impressive. But no, it was a lot of fun. Again, Kim, breaking it down, there's a lot of things I hadn't thought of. I super always love your opinion on these things, and... It's a great uh, series to do because it is just a ton of fun to watch and a ton of fun to unpack. So, so much fun. Okay, we'll do the next one soon. Okay, bye.